It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much to report this morning. On the rundown, you're going to hear from physician advisor, Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. She's going to report on why you might want to abandon your peer-to-peer process for resolving disputed claims. Author, educator, and consultant Wayne Abbey reports on compliance issues facing physicians who might want to opt out of Medicare, driven perhaps by the peer-to-peer process. A newcomer to this broadcast is Teresa Forster. She, the Vice President of Hospice Policy and Programs for the National Association of Hospice and Home Care. She's going to be reporting on changes to the CMS Hospice Compare Program that was announced last week by CMS. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. This has to do with Chicago. We'll learn more later in the broadcast. And Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHerge, who has a developing surgery report while making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week was semi-boring, and that means I get to talk to you more about what to do about total knee replacements. Now, once again, I'm going to remind you that this only applies to traditional Medicare patients. For every other payer, get the procedure pre-certified and get the status from the payer. And I'll also remind you that with those payers, you really should not care about the status. What you care about is the reimbursement. So check your contracts and fee schedules. If an inpatient total knee from an insurer paid $25,000 and an outpatient paid $30,000, which would you want? Now, last week I was made starkly aware of the big issue we're all facing. I visited five hospitals in Los Angeles, and at three of them, 95% of the Medicare total knee patients go home on the second post-op day. At the other two, 95% of patients go home on the day after surgery. Each of these groups has to look at status issues completely different. One can admit most patients since they will be staying two midnights, but they must justify keeping the patient those two days and the other has to figure out how to justify inpatient for patients with an under two midnight expectation or decide whether they should be done as outpatient. So what to do? Well, as you recall, in the final rule, CMS said they would not produce guidelines, but instead suggested that professional societies and clinical staff develop guidelines on their own since they have the specialized knowledge and experience to do so. Well, that finally happened. First, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons put out a frequently asked questions. While it's not a position statement, they do state, quote, there is no need to justify why a procedure is not being performed as an outpatient, end quote. In other words, they're saying that the default status is inpatient, no questions asked. Then the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons issued a formal position statement, and it's in the handout section along with the AAOS frequently asked questions. They base their position on the fact that CMS stated that a majority of patients will remain inpatient. This group goes on to say, quote, when a standard status is expected by the overwhelming majority, the burden of proof should fall on the exception, not on the standard. 
all relevant parties agree that the burden of proof is on the surgeon to clearly state not why this patient requires inpatient designation, but rather what criteria are present to suggest that inpatient resources are not expected to be utilized. In other words, their position is also that the default status is inpatient, except for the rare benef- medif- excuse me, Medicare beneficiary who would be categorized as an ASA class one and normal healthy patient who doesn't smoke, has minimal alcohol use, is not obese, and has absolutely no medical conditions. Now, while I agree that the bar for inpatient admission is quite low, I'm not sure that it can be ordered without any justification. Tomorrow, many of us will be asking CMS to clarify this messy issue on the Open Door Forum, and I'll be reporting the outcome or lack thereof here and on rackmonitor.com. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Nancy, what are the hot topics today? Well, good morning, Chuck. I'm fresh back from the American Physical Therapy Association meeting in New Orleans where 17,000 folks convened to get the latest updates and get energized. However, there's still new no update on the therapy cap process. And I want to give everybody... Uh, what CMS is stating on their spotlight page. Mind you, it's still not posted on a therapy page, and most people are not aware of the spotlight page. Here's CMS's guidance. Starting January 25th, CMS will immediately release for processing held therapy claims with the KX with dates of service received Jan 1 through 10th. Then on January 31st, they'll release for processing the held claims one day at a time based on the date the claim was received on a first-in, first-out basis. At the same time, CMS is going to hold all newly received therapy claims with the KX and implement a rolling hold of 20 days to help them minimize the number of claims requiring reprocessing. For example, on January 1st, CMS will hold all therapy claims with the KX received that day and release for processing the claims received on January 11th. Similarly, on February 1st, CMS will hold all therapy claims with the KX received that day and release for processing the claims held received on January 12th and so on. So, unfortunately, that's the status that we have on the therapy cap. Even though we have no therapy cap, we're still appending the KX modifier pending further instructions. My next update's a bit disappointing. Everybody's been anxiously awaiting the news of TRICARE allowing PTAs and OTAs to provide therapy services regardless of the venue in which they're provided. Based upon a meeting that uh, several members of the Therapy CAP Coalition had with the Department of Defense representatives in the last few weeks, it would appear that based on the regulatory requirements, it might be till January of 2021 that we can expect this. More news will come on that. And this morning, our poll is going to be on opting out of Medicare. CMS has permitted MDs and DOs to opt out of Medicare since the Balanced Budget Act of 97. However, PAs, NPs, CNS, CRNA, CMN, and CSW may also opt out. But do you think there's a trend for more physicians and practitioners to opt out these days? 
click yes for number one. Number two is no. Number three, you don't know enough about the opt-out topic. Check number four if you have no opinion. And, of course, always if it's non-applicable. Chuck, we'll be back later in the broadcast. Can't wait for Dwayne Abbey's update on this. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, David Glazer, Teresa Forster, and Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. This is Monday. It's February the 26th, 2018, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you refunding Medicare for claims that did not meet evaluation and management guidelines? Register now to attend a live webcast with healthcare attorney David Glazer and learn why that is not necessarily the best way to lower your organization's risk. In fact, a refund may be counterproductive. Join David Glazer for this exclusive Rack Monitor live webcast. David will explain the legal significance of the guidelines and why many well-intentioned documentation reviews actually increase the risk that you will face an overpayment or false claims act case. Attend this important webcast, Avoid Refunding Your Medicare Claims Based on E&M Guidelines. It's this Thursday, March 1st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register today. Click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Coming up later in this broadcast, why it might be time to junk that peer-to-peer process. We're going to hear from Dr. Juliet Hugarty, who has that report. Also, could it be that the peer-to-peer process is the reason why some physicians might be thinking about opting out of Medicare? Standing by with that report is author, educator, and consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Now we check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. This time it has to do with Chicago. Good morning, David. What is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So I had a client with a modifier 25 question that demonstrates perfectly how some compliance efforts can inadvertently make things worse rather than better, and why you can't blindly trust experts. So this particular situation involved ophthalmology, but modifier 25 is an issue for most specialties. A consultant informed my client that it was improper for them to bill an E&M service on the day a patient received an age-related macular degeneration injection. I called the consultant because I disagreed. My understanding is that when the RUC, or the Relative Value um, Update Committee, established the work units for the injection, they excluded the work associated with E&M because the data showed physicians only bill for visits about half the time. On the phone, the consultant said there was no way the visit could be billable because it was not, and I quote, separate, identifiable, and unrelated to the injection. My ears perked up. I asked the consultant if he was certain that the service needed to be unrelated. He was. Turns out he was certain and incorrect. Nothing in the CPT book or any other binding authority says that an evaluation and management service has to be unrelated to a procedure in order for it to be billable. It's true it must be separate and identifiable, but the RUC's position strongly suggests that that's true here. I asked the consultant to offer the authorities upon which he was relying. He cited the Medicare Provider Manual. Now, I think he meant he was relying on the Medicare Claims Processing Manual. I'm sure that many physicians are blindly relying on this consultant's recommendation to refund money because an E&M service and injection was billed on the same day. But the consultant misunderstands the relevant policy. 
Applying the standard for modifier 25 is difficult. I have to admit, sometimes I don't agree with myself on how to do it. But it's not that difficult to agree on what the standard is. The consultant in this case was totally wrong. Um, and so I think that's highlighting the lesson. You can't blindly trust someone who says, you can't do this. You've got to ask them why. Now, from there, the situation got worse. The well-intentioned client created a memo to their board reporting the consultant's observation. It outlined two options. Either use the OIG's self-reporting protocol or, and this is a quote, do nothing, wait to be discovered as a result of a payer audit or whistleblower claim, unquote. Now think about how that sounds. According to the memo, if the practice opts not to refund this money, they've knowingly committed fraud and are just waiting to be caught. Now, I don't think this practice has done anything wrong. I think that the, there's a really good argument that the service is billable. I'd tell them to sit tight and defend the situation if anyone criticizes them. Unfortunately, the wording of the memo greatly increases the risk of this approach. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about how to word memos like this better. Speaking of wording things better, that's a theme that we're going to cover on Thursday's Rack Monitor webinar that Chuck just, uh, uh, sorry, not Chuck, but Clark just told you about. If you ever refer to charts with poor documentation as overcoded or overbilled, or you talk about how you have an overpayment, you'll want to listen so you can better learn ways of reframing the situation. I promise that if you apply the advice in this webinar, you're going to lower the risk that your organization will have a False Claims Act case. You can register under the Handouts tab. Now, Chuck, I thought I only knew one song with the word 25. Come up with a couple more now. But perhaps the best-known one is by a group named after one of my favorite cities, the hometown of my alma mater, Go Maroons, Buckingham Fountain, Alder Platitarium, and Dr. Hirsch. I'm sure that Chicago is singing about modifier 25 or 6 to 4. 25 or 6 to 4. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. By the way, there still is time to register now for his webcast coming up this Thursday. Last Thursday, CMS posted an update to its Hospice Compare website. So what's new and what's different and why is this news? Well, reporting live from Washington, D.C., is the Vice President of Hospice Policy and Programs for the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. That's Teresa Forster. Good morning, Teresa. Welcome to the broadcast. And uh, what's new and what's different about this Hospice Compare website? Thanks, Chuck. While Medicare has publicly reported comparative quality rankings for years, hospice is only beginning to catch up to other providers in terms of having quality scores available for use by patients, families, referral sources, and others. Hospice Compare launched in August 2017 with the availability of seven hospice item set-based quality measures. The hospice item set contains agency-reported information that's been extracted from the clinical record and measure the degree to which a hospice has addressed, a certain, uh, addressed certain processes that are associated with quality care as part of treatment. The measures were National Quality Forum endorsed and fall under two classifications, treatment preferences and managing pain and symptoms. Treatment 
preferences are specifically whether or not the patient has, has been asked about treatment preferences and whether or not the patient's been asked about their beliefs and values related to care. Under managing pain and symptoms, measures include whether the patient's been screened for pain and if it's been found, whether the hospice conducted a timely pain assessment, whether the patient's been screened for dyspnea and if found, treated for it, and whether patients treated with opioids are given a bowel regimen. Unfortunately, um, there were some hiccups associated with the initial rollout of COMPARE, including that some of the hospice demographic data was incorrect, particularly profit status. Um, additionally, much of the service area information was incorrect, so the search and COMPARE functions were initially compromised. However, it appears that CMS has been able to quickly address those issues, and the search functioning appears to be working now. The big news with the most recent quarterly hospice COMPARE refresh on February 20th is that it contains the first outcomes-based measures for hospice care. These are measures drawn from the Hospice Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems, or the CAPS survey. Responses are supplied by the primary informal caregiver following a patient's death. COMPARE contains a total of eight measures drawn from hospice CAPS, and six of the measures are composed of more than one question from the survey. Two additional measures are responses to whether the respondent would be willing to recommend the hospice and an overall satisfaction score. Uh, so the six composites are the hospice team communications, getting timely care, treating family members with respect, getting emotional and religious support, getting help for symptoms, and getting hospice care training. And as mentioned previously, the um, single question um, scores are on the overall rating of the hospice and willingness to recommend the hospice. Hospices have been anxiously awaiting publication of this data, this outcome data, as they believe it better represents information that consumers and referral sources will be most interested in. More measures will be added soon, including a composite score reflecting all of the hospice item set quality measures and new measures related to the degree to which hospices are providing visits during the final seven and three days of life. Uh, CMS also has under development a hospice, a hospice assessment instrument, which is called the HEART tool, and eventually, as with other providers, we anticipate a star rating system. So hospice now has its feet firmly planted in the new world of healthcare quality transparency. So I was the vice president of hospice policy and programs for the National Association of Home Care and Hospitals. Teresa Forster, thanks very much. And we're pleased to report that William Dombey, who has reported on hospice news in the past here on Modern Monday, is now the new president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. So, Bill, if you're listening, congratulations from all of us here at Monitor Monday. Now, here's a question for you. Should the peer-to-peer -peer process involving physicians duking it out with commercial and managed care plans be abandoned, perhaps at your facility? Physician advisor Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins has advice for all of you who might be considering what some call an abhorred practice. Good morning, everyone. The peer-to-peer -peer process is a particularly abhorrent chore for physicians. These phone conversations are generally offered by commercial and managed insurance plans when their clinical case manager or medical director does not feel inpatient status is supported for a particular patient. The peer-to-peer -peer is an opportunity for the attending physician or sometimes consulting physician, caring for the patient to verbally duke it out with the insurance plan's medical director about why inpatient status is appropriate. The attending physician will either convince the medical director that inpatient is appropriate or not. If not, the attending physician, with the help of the case manager, must decide what to do next. Ideally, the hospital's physician advisor has already weighed in on the appropriate status 
and the attending physician is aware of his or her opinion by the case manager, if not the physician advisor herself. If both the physician advisor and the attending physician agree with inpatient status, the designation should stand despite the determination by the insurance medical director that outpatient with observation services is appropriate. In such a case, the hospital's denials and appeals team will pursue an appeal if a medical necessity denial comes down the pike following patient discharge. The peer-to-peer process itself is tedious and time-consuming. The insurance plan's case manager calls the patient's case manager. The case manager contacts the attending physician. And finally, the attending physician calls the medical director. Usually, this game of telephone is required to be completed in 72, 48, or even 24 hours, depending on contractual rules. Many times, the conversation between physicians involves pointless debate over MCG or interqual guidelines. Other times, even if the clinical evidence illustrating the severity of the patient's symptoms and complexity of their plan of care is rock solid, there is no swaying the medical director. So why conduct peer-to-peers? Good question. The common understanding is that it's easier to overturn a denial for inpatient status with a peer-to-peer than it is with the appeal letter process post-discharge. But is this really the case? If you are not tracking your peer-to-peers and their outcomes, how can you know? This is why you need to monitor this metric. How many peer-to-peers are being done by your physicians versus your physician advisors? What percentage of each is actually resulting in the insurance plan supporting inpatient status? If the attending physician's peer-to-peers result in only 20% overturned, and your physician advisors hang up the phone with an overturn 80% of the time, why the heck aren't your physician advisors participating in all of the peer-to-peers? Perhaps they are not allowed to contractually per the insurance plan, but you should make sure. What's happening per payer? Are your physicians or physician advisors generally successful with one plan, but almost never with another? You won't know unless you check out the data. Maybe it's worth continuing peer-to-peers with the one, but scrapping them for the other. If, no matter who participates in the peer-to-peer, only a small percentage of the cases are overturned, consider a radical thought, abandoning peer-to-peers altogether. Granted, this plan hinges entirely on whether or not your contracts allow appeal post-discharge without a peer-to-peer beforehand. But if they don't, it's time for some soul-searching. Why are multiple individuals across your hospital expending time and energy into a process which infrequently leads to a positive outcome, but always leads to even more time and energy focused into an appeal? Why not just ditch the generally fruitless efforts on the front end and concentrate on the post-discharge appeals? Check out your stats and consider these points. Prepare yourself for the very real possibility that no one in your hospital is the wiser when it comes to the effectiveness of the peer-to-peers. If not, add another project to your list. I've received quite a bit of feedback about this topic since my article printed on Rack Monitor. Stay tuned for a recap of opinions from other physician advisors around the country in an upcoming piece. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much. That was Physician Advisor for Case Management at ProHealthcare in Wisconsin, Dr. Julian Hugarte-Hopkins, who, by the way, as she mentioned, has an excellent article on that subject. We posted to the homepage at rackmonitor.com. After hearing Dr. Ugarte Hopkins, you might be wondering if the peer-to-peer process is something that, for some reasons, some of your physicians might be considering to opt out of Medicare. 
Opting out of Medicare, of course, is an all-or-nothing situation with lots of compliance issues. Here now with that report is author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about opt-out physicians and practitioners. Now, you have to look at the uh, lists of those folks that qualify for this, but these are the physicians and practitioners that have affirmatively decided not to bill claims to the Medicare program. They can still see Medicare beneficiaries, but it is done under private contract. Now, uh, this is a process. Uh, the doctor, the practitioner, must file an affidavit uh, indicating that they want to opt out of the Medicare program. Uh, and uh, theoretically, at least in the past, it used to be they had to update this every two years. The, uh, uh, the process now is automatic. So it's simply reviewed every two years, and if a physician wants to uh, discontinue their opt-out status, then uh, they must take appropriate action within certain time frames. Okay, everyone, we're dealing with the bureaucracy of Medicare. All right. Now, please note that physicians and practitioners can, at least in some sense, opt out of other contractual situations but they don't have to do so affirmatively. They simply uh, uh, decide not to enter into a contract with a given third-party payer. Now, there are some potential real problems associated with this opt-out process. Uh, first of all, when the opt-out physicians and practitioners process was established, uh, they see Medicare beneficiaries under private contract except for emergent and urgent care. Now, this raises the immediate question, well, what is emergent care? What is urgent care? How do you document to <laughs> distinguish, say, urgent care from just pure, plain clinical care. Okay. Now, the definition for uh, an emergency medical condition is pretty well embedded within EMTALA. The uh, definition of urgent care is much more variable. For the Medicare program, they use a 12-hour rule. In other words, the uh, condition is considered to be urgent if it is not treated within uh, 12 hours it most likely will become uh, an emergent situation. Now, given this fact, how do we document all of this? How do we make certain that we have uh, everything just the way that we want to have it? Okay? And that's a good question. Then there's also the question about filing claims. Well, what if the physician has opted out of the Medicare program but they are now seeing this patient, not under private contract, but for an urgent care condition. How are they going to file claims with Medicare for this service? Because they've opted out. Do they still need to enroll 
If so, what enrollment form do they need to use? Another uh, little example of this is with medications. What about Part D? Well, can uh, opt-out physicians still prescribe medications and have them be covered under Part D? Now, the answer to this question is yes, they can. Uh, CMS has made provisions for this. But again, the question becomes, well, who's filing for what? Who's filing this Part D claim? Is it the uh, beneficiary themselves or someone on behalf of the beneficiary? Okay. Now, even if the care is is uh, not emergent or urgent, you may find an opt-out physician meeting a patient at your ER and using the ER as a clinic setting. So who can file for what then? And let's assume that the uh, patient is under contract, okay? Now, I've just barely scratched the surface of this uh, topic. There are many, many uh, compliance considerations that we need to make. All right, back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, uh, Dwayne. That was author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Dr. Abbey is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consulting, Incorporated in Ames, Iowa. Uh, now's the time for the results for our Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy. Well, that was really interesting. I enjoyed Dr. Abbey's report on opting out. Let's see what our listeners this morning had to say. 26% of our listeners stated that they think there will be a trend for more physicians to opt out. 24% did not think there was a trend for them to opt out. But 30% of our listeners, Chuck, really don't know enough about the topic. So that gives us an opportunity to bring Dr. Abby back on this topic again. Back to you. Thank you very much. It's going to be a wrap for us. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, whom you just heard, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Teresa Forrester, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. Julia Ugarte Hopkins. We look forward to you returning with us next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.